Okay, welcome everybody and thank you very much for coming. Welcome to the University of Edinburgh and to the McEwen Hall. Um, this is one of our fine buildings. It's where we have many of the graduation ceremonies, we have exams, we have open days and we have lectures like this. Unfortunately, although it's a very beautiful building, it's one of the buildings that's actually very hard to keep. Um, but it is built completely with beer money from the McEwans many years ago. So this is the first in this year's series of Enlightenment lectures, and we've had quite a lot of very good lectures. Um, Irene Calm, uh, Tom Devine, Jose Barasa, Ian Wilmot. So there's been a whole series of absolutely excellent Enlightenment lectures. And today's the first day of a new term and a new academic year. So it's really nice to also have the first of this series of Enlightenment lectures. And I'm especially pleased because we've now got a number of postdoc societies around the university and the postdoc society have been the ones who've organised this lecture and chosen the speakers. So I'm very pleased that I'm going to be introducing um, Professor Steve Jones. He's Professor of Genetics and he's Head of genetics at UCL in London. Steve was born in Wales, but he saw sense and came to Edinburgh to do his degree and his PhD, so he's an Edinburgh graduate, um, and so we're particularly pleased. We lay claim to our ex-graduates when, um, when they do really good things, so um, we're very pleased to have Steve back again to give this talk. He's a prize-winning author with many, many um, books on evolution. Uh, but what I want to say is really that Steve has worked an awful lot on evolution. He's written over a hundred scientific papers, serious scientific papers on things like snails and fruit flies. So he's one of those rare people that bridges that gap between doing hard science and then engaging with the public about what he does. And he's written huge numbers of books. He won the Michael Faraday Prize from the Royal Society for his activities in public engagement. And he's been a TV presenter, he's been a radio broadcaster, he's been involved in various TV series, and he also has a column in the Daily Telegraph. So welcome to the first University of Edinburgh Enlightenment Lecture of the series for this year, and Steve is going to talk to us about is human evolution over? So, welcome, Steve. Uh, for those of you who've got a train to catch, the answer is yes. Um, so you can leave now if you want to. Um, okay, um, I think the idea of evolution uh, goes back, I think we, think we all know, that the idea of evolution goes back long before Charles Darwin. Um, they, people may not have had a mechanism for evolution, but the notion of change is a very, very ancient one. You can, see it in the, you can see it among the ancient Greeks, among the Egyptians and the like, the feeling that things are going to alter in the future. And nearly always that change has a direction to it, often, and often an optimistic one. Uh, here we have uh, perhaps the very first 
model of the human future, which is written by Thomas More, who was an English cleric, of course, of the 16th century, uh, executed for not going along with the religious orthodoxy of the day. And he wrote a book and invented the word called Utopia. And uh, he, he drew a map of Utopia, uh, which looks rather like the Isle of Wight, which is not where I'd expect to find Utopia, but be that as it may. And in Thomas More's mythical Utopia, many things have changed. It's an interesting book. It's rather hard to read because it's in an, an antique language, but it's an interesting book. And what happens is that society undergoes a great revolution. In that book, and in several others which descend from it, which are very similar, uh, things happen like chamber pots are now made of gold because gold is useful uh, as, an easy, as an easily malleable metal. People who become ill are sent to prison because they haven't looked after themselves. Uh, people, who, uh, who, people who commit crimes are put into hospital because there must be something wrong with them. And it's an interesting model of the future, the utopia which will emerge um, as the years go by. And that, there are many books like that. And the interesting aspect of that utopia is although society may change, the people stay the same. The utopians um, who lived in this, uh, in this uh, carefully mapped place here would looked just exactly like you and I, although perhaps they behaved in a very, very different way. But about 100 years ago, there was a complete switch in people's models of the future future of human evolution, as we might call it, because there are plenty of utopian models and novels and, and, uh, and films and so on around today. The whole of science fiction is utopian, talking about what's going to happen in the future. And generally, they all have one simple plot, one simple kind of utopian who looks like this. This, I'm told, comes from Star Trek, although I've never actually seen Star Trek, I'm ashamed to say, being an ignorant person. And what happens in Star Trek, and it's many, many uh, similar books and uh, series, is that actually society is much the same. There are warring tribes, there are hierarchies of command, there's a bit of love interest here and there, there lots of violence. So we'd recognize the society, but the people change. The people generate unlikely eyebrows like this, or non-functional ears, or pointed teeth and peculiar noses. Um, so actually, what we now have, in most people's view of the future, is not a social change, but a biological change. And I think you can actually uh, relate that event to, um, to, um, to a, a particular book, which has a rather interesting history. And its hit book is H.G. Wells's The Time Machine, written in the late 19th century. And it's, I'm sure not nearly all of you will have read the book, but it's the first modern utopian novel, really. And the plot is, at first sight, straightforward. What happens is uh, somebody called the time traveler, who's never actually named, this time traveler, um, this time traveler uh, develops a machine, a bit like a bicycle, which you can leap on and zoom off into the future. So he gets off on his bicycle, zooms off into the future, some unspecified time in the years to come, and uh, slows down and stops, and wakes up in somewhere um, which actually is a bit like Morningside. Um, what is it? It's full of charming people who've had their tea, I have to say, they've had them by the time he arrives. It's full of charming, intelligent people who live in nice buildings and read The Guardian and chat, chit-chat over the hedge. Perhaps a slightly insipid place to live, but certainly perfectly tolerable. And um, he settles in this place. A little bit of decorous love interest takes place between himself and one of the locals. And these people of the future in this utopia, this charming, wonderful um, suburb, are called the Eli. And he stays among the Eli for some weeks and months. And slowly, it transpires that the Eli have a terrible secret. 
because there's another group of people too who don't live in some metaphorical morning side, rather they emerge from some uh, theoretical leaf walk, the lower end thereof, um, and they're terrible, terrible thugs, okay? Actually, they come out at night, quite an accurate statement when it comes to leaf walk in my memory of Edinburgh. Um, they come out at night and they get drunk and they throw up and they beat up these unfortunate Eli and they burgle their houses, um, so not much has changed really in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and in fact, they even kill and eat them. And even in Leith, that doesn't happen very often. Okay. And what's actually happened is that the human race has split into two different species. The Eli, who are charming but ineffective, and these brutal thugs who actually live underground and come out and, and brutalize them um, for much of the time. So that's an evolutionary model of the future. It's a, it's a dystopian model of the future. And of course, Wells being a good novelist, there is a twist in the tale. And the twist in the tale is that actually the Eli are just the domestic animals of the uh, Morlocks. Um, they're just the equivalent of sheep and cattle, and the Morlocks feed them and let them have a nice time in, and drink tea in this metaphorical uh, morning side, and then they kill them and they eat them. So what's actually happened is that the human race has evolved into a brutal race of thugs. Now, you can actually trace that fear of the future, of the biological future, to one particular individual, Francis Galton. Francis Galton was the founder of my laboratory at UCL, the Galton Laboratory. He was, of course, as everybody knows, Charles Darwin's cousin. Uh, he was very interesting. He was a remarkable man. Um, he was a classic example of a flawed scientist. He was somebody who, had he started a PhD, would never have finished it. Because once he'd done one thing, he leapt off and did something else partially. He never really thought things through. He did a number of remarkable things. Um, he was the first person to use fingerprints in detective, um, in detective work, for example. He wrote a paper which baffles me, called Arithmetic by Smell. He was the only person, he was the only person to make a beauty map of the British Isles based on going around British cities and scoring the local females on a five-point scale from attractive to repulsive. Um, the high point was in South Kensington, where perhaps it still is, outside Harrods, and the low point, you'd be glad to hear, was in Aberdeen. Um, I once pointed this, and I, I once said this in Aberdeen, and I had to run. Um, I managed to bite my tongue without saying where it still is, so I got away with that. And Galton was very much concerned about human quality. And that beauty map was only part of his exploration of human qualities. He looked at height and weight and strength and intelligence and that kind of stuff. And he was convinced that human quality was inherited. He wrote a book called Hereditary Genius, um, which is sometimes called the first human genetics textbook. It really isn't. It's a political book rather than a, rather than a scientific book. But he was the founder of the science or the quasi-science of eugenics, who felt that the human race would decay, decline, unless something was done about it. His views are really quite stark. Um, I should, I, here's a summary of, of uh, this is an interesting diagram. This is Galton's diagram of racial ability. It's an interesting diagram because it's the first ever statistical distribution, first ever published statistical distribution. It's rather a crude one, but it, it's, uh, it's the, um, it's, uh, that's what it is. If you look down, the ancient Greeks are pretty smart, but they're, they're extinct, so that doesn't matter. That's the, the English, that's the English, not the British. Um, the English were almost as smart, smarter than the Asians, the Asians being smarter than the Africans, and you'll see a considerable overlap between Australians and dogs, all right? <laughs> And again, I once showed this at Sydney, and that didn't go down too well either. Um, well, you can, you can, uh, you can uh, disapprove of that, as of course I do. But it is a statement of the way that people thought, that there were huge differences in ability among individuals and among races, and the second-rate genes were taking over. That, I, that notion, needless to say, 
is an evolutionary one. It's a Darwinian one that comes from Charles Darwin himself. And I want to argue that actually things have now, are now in such a situation, in such a state in biology, and a, a good state, not advanced state, that we know so much about the process of evolution and the past of human evolution that unlike Galton, unlike H.G. Wells, unlike Thomas More, who simply guessed about the future, we are now in a position to make some at least educated guesses about what may to come in the next few hundred, the next few thousand years. So let me talk briefly first about Charles Darwin, um, about what his theory actually is, and I'm sure you all know, but it, I think it's worth reminding ourselves. Darwin defined the theory, theory of evolution in three simple and pregnant words, descent with modification. Descent, the passage of information from one generation to the next. Modification, the fact that that passage was imperfect, that there were mistakes, and therefore there was bound to be change. It was very, very simple. Um, that th evolution is so simple it could almost be physics, in fact. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. We can rephrase um, Darwin's notion in modern terms as evolution is genetics plus time. You've got genetics, you've got DNA, you've got uh, mutation, errors in transmission, you've got time, three and a half thousand million years since the origin of life, and it is absolutely inevitable and unavoidable that things will change. So that's what the, the core of Darwin's theory was, and it was an old idea. It had been used um, many years previously by linguists and by other people. Darwin had a second part, and a much cleverer part, which is entirely his own, um, of the evolutionary mechanism, which was natural selection. And I'll return to natural selection a little bit later in the lecture, simply because it is so important. So evolution is fundamentally about differences. It's about differences among individuals. It's about differences in individuals' response to the environment they face. And it's about random differences that take place through the accidents of sampling from generation to generation. Uh, mutation, selection, and genetic drift, to use the um, somewhat te slightly technical language that we would use to describe those three components. And my case is, and I think there's some, there's some merit in it, that actually uh, all those three processes, mutation, selection, and drift, have greatly modified and reduced their activity in modern human populations, at least in the developed world, and at least for the time being, which means that evolution um, is in effect over. I'll put a health warning on that statement. I mean evolution in the sense uh, uh, you, as it's usually described by the general public, some change in structure or in form, some development in something different. Certainly evolution is not over in the biologist's sense, because to a biologist, evolution is simply a change in gene frequencies from generation to generation, and that's still going on. But I'll talk about it in the general sense uh, as seen by most of the public. So what we need to do is to look at these three processes, mutation, selection, and genetic drift. Now, mutation, errors in, in, um, in copying DNA, is universal. Everybody will be a different person at the end of this lecture from what they were at the beginning because everybody will have made several hundred miles of DNA in their bodies, and there will be many, many mistakes made, some of which I have to tell you may kill you because they cause cancer uh, during that process. So mutation goes on all the time. It's not a rare process. It's a common process, and we know a great deal about it. Um, there are, mutation builds up diversity, and we have a huge amount of genetic diversity in the human race. I used to proudly uh, boast that, to my undergraduates that every person alive was different, apart from identical twins, every person alive was different from every other person, not only alive, but everybody who ever had lived or ever would live in the future 
because of the accumulation of difference and mutation. The latest estimates are much more startling. They are, because we've begun to look at, at variation at the DNA level, every sperm and every egg ever made in the history of humankind is different from every other sperm and every other egg. And given that every time a man has sex, he makes enough sperm to fertilize every woman in Europe, um, that's a lot of difference, okay? So there's a huge amount of difference out there which uh, traces itself ultimately to mutation. And one of the common themes in utopian or dystopian novels in science fiction is some terrible mutation event caused by an exploding nuclear power station or by rays from outer space that gives rise to giant rats who run around eating people and the like. And that was a real fear in the days of genetics, um, even 40 or 50 or maybe 60 years ago. Uh, there was a geneticist, a great geneticist who worked a while here in Edinburgh, H.J. Muller, who worked on the effects of x-rays in causing mutation, which they most emphatically do. Um, another concern was the effect of chemicals in causing mutation. Um, genetics is such an amazingly young subject, and I, it's hard to believe that I myself, in my own undistinguished way, was taught my elementary genetics by the woman here in Edinburgh who discovered the effects of chemicals in damaging DNA, Charlotte Auerbach, who was an amazing woman. And it's a bit like a physicist being taught by Newton, you know, somebody who founded an entire branch of the science, teaching the next generation. Um, so there was real concern, particularly about the time of the Second World War, that we were going to damage our DNA with chemicals and radiation and God knows what. Perhaps the most, um, perhaps the most um, cynical scientific experiment ever carried out is summarized by this uh, slide here, which is a picture of the atom bomb dropping on Hiroshima in August, on August the 6th, 1945. And of course, it, another one was dropped a few days later um, on Nagasaki. And the Japanese emperor, in a classic piece of party political broadcast speak, um, spoke to his nation for the first time ever they'd ever heard from him. Fellow Japanese, he said, the war is developing in a direction not necessarily to our country's advantage. Um, in other words, we surrender. And they surrendered. And within a week, uh, a team of scientists had been sent into Hiroshima and into Nagasaki. And they were of two kinds. They were physicists who wanted to know, wanted to know um, <clears throat> uh, what damage the bomb had done, and they were horrified by what it had done. And they were biologists who were going to look not just at the effects of the radiation, which was massive, on those who'd experienced it, and it killed lots and lots of people, and lots more people died of radiation sickness, but more interesting, in a rather cynical way, um, at the effects on their children because there was a strong expectation that there would be a massive effect on the DNA of the next generation, a huge increase in the mutation rate, <coughs> which had been brought about by exposure to radiation. Well, this was in 1945, and I have to say, with the benefit of hindsight, it was an entirely futile exercise because we had, didn't have any means for looking for human mutations. But the Atomic Bomb Control Commission, as it was called, the ABCC, stayed in, Japan, stayed in Hiroshima until five or six years ago when it felt its task was complete. And the short answer is, at the end, of the, the short answer is they found no effects of the bomb whatsoever. At the end of their 60 years in Hiroshima, DNA technology was beginning to emerge, and they were able to look at the DNA of parents and offspring. Uh, they found altogether 27 different mutations, 27 changes out of many hundreds of thousands of, or more of genes that they looked at, 27 changes in, in children compared to their parents. As I said, the bombs had had no effect, but there was one very interesting and remarkable observation. 24 of those changes had taken place in the father and not the mother. 
Now we know that for many mutations, at least, perhaps not all, um, that's a universal truth, that many, many, many more mutations take place in the male line than in the female line. And that has some rather, a, uh, some rather important implications. It's easy to see why it's, it happens like that. Um, males and females make their sex cells, sperm and eggs, in quite different ways. Females make their eggs, women make their eggs uh, effectively before they're born. They're generated and put into sort of suspended animation and then released at um, intervals throughout their reproductive lives. And what that means is there's only a limited number of cell divisions, each of which has a chance of error, between the egg that a woman makes and the egg that she passes on to her son or to her child. In fact, it's about seven, um, seven or eight cell divisions, most people say. Not very many. Um, um, <clears throat> males are quite different. Men never rest. Men make sperm all the time, even when they're giving lectures in the McEwen Hall. Um, and that means that there's a huge number of cell divisions between the sperm that makes a man and the sperm that he passes on to the next generation. And uh, for the mean age of human reproduction in the West, for men, which is now about 26, um, there, are something, there are something like six or 700 cell divisions between the sperm that made him and the sperm that he passed on. And every time that, uh, that uh, sperm is made, it's a division of a division of a division of a division. It's copy of a copy of a copy. There's a chance of mutation. And that's why there are more mutations among men than among women. But the effect is worse than that because actually it means that the older the man is, the more mutations he's likely to pass on in the next generation. And the effect is not small. Uh, for a 51-year-old for a father, for example, there are something like 2,000 cell divisions. And for a 75-year-old father, and such people certainly exist, there may be three or 4,000 cell divisions, each of which has got a chance of error and which of which um, can increase the mutation rate. And here's uh, a slide we don't have to look at in detail, um, which slightly understates the case, actually, uh, of various kinds of mutation which are generated anew. Uh, the one we show is, is, the, is the Velazquez painting of the, of the dwarf, um, uh, achondroplasia, short arms and legs. And you can see a striking increase from 24-year-old fathers to 50-year-old fathers. It goes up by about five or six times. But if you go to 70-year-old fathers, it goes up by about 10 times. And for these various other things, the same. There's a recent paper, which I find hard to, hard to accept, but the evidence seems clear, which asks about the effects of paternal age, and maternal age for that matter, on the intelligence of children. And the effect is, is reasonably striking. Let me get this right. I've only just dug this out, so I'll have to <coughs> remind myself what it's like. Um, these are various, these are various um, measures of IQ. Let's, and the measures of IQ and paternal age. Let's just look at the top left one, okay? For the paternal age from, uh, from around, around 16 to about uh, 60, IQ score drops on the average for fathers. Uh, the, the downward pointing line is the father, age of fathers. IQ drops on the average from about 108 points for 18-year-old fathers to about 100 points or a bit less um, for the children of 60-year-old fathers. Now, that might be due to mutation, might be due to mutation. The thing which is really strange is that the other line, the one that goes up, is the age of mothers. Um, so that actually older mothers tend to have more intelligent children than I don't understand. But it's a hint that there may be something interesting going on. So if you want to know about what's going to happen to the future of the human mutation rate, don't start worrying about radiation and chemicals because their effects are really very small. Ask about the age of fathers. And actually, the figures are really rather surprising. 
what actually happens, what's actually happened in the developed world is that there are fewer older fathers than there used to be. And that might seem surprising, but what's happened in the developed world for both men and women is that actually we now confine our reproductive lives into a very, very short period. In the in ancient times, and to a degree, still in Africa and such places, what happened was that any, everybody who reached sexual maturity um, began reproducing as soon as they were biologically able to, and ceased reproducing as soon as they were biologically unable to. Perhaps because they were dead, or perhaps because they'd reached menopause, but there was a, a strong, a widespread of maternal and paternal age. That's changed. Here's a diagram that shows the fertility with age of men, the age of fathers in effect, in a variety of countries. In Cameroon, which is shown as a red dotted line, in Pakistan, the blue dotted line, and in the most advanced country of all, of course, which is France, which is the black solid line. And if you look at Cameroon, in fact, in Cameroon, more than half or about half of all children are born to fathers over 45, which is when this effect begins to begins to come in. In Pakistan, which has moved further on in the development stakes, something like probably um, 10, 10 or 15 percent of children are born in fathers over 45. In France, about 5 percent. Okay? And the same is true in Britain. So there are far fewer older fathers than before, so that rather counterintuitively, if anything has happened to the mutation rate, it's gone down. So the notion that our biological future, our evolution, is going to be damned by an increase in the mutation rate is simply wrong. Okay? So let's move now. I don't think mutation is the, central, is the central mover in this argument, but it's interesting to see that effect. <clears throat> let's move now to perhaps the more important part of the Darwinian argument, which is natural selection. Now, natural selection is, is simple, at least in principle. Natural selection consists of inherited differences in the chances of reproducing. Okay? If you bear a gene which makes it more likely that you will survive, find a mate, and reproduce than people who bear a different version of the same gene, your version will become common in subsequent generations um, and uh, it will help the evolving line to adapt to new circumstances and in time, as Darwin suggested, may give rise to new forms of life. Many people find natural selection uh, almost impossible to accept. The entire intelligent design movement, um, the stupid non-design movement, uh, says the eye is so complicated that natural selection couldn't do it. Well, that's just plain silly. I often think of natural selection as a factory a factory for making almost impossible things. Everybody in this room is an almost impossible thing. Some possibly more impossible than others. How would I know? Um, it's highly unlikely that any one of us is here, but every one of us stands on a mound of billions of corpses of people who did not survive and reproduce. That's why we look the way we do. And natural selection, inherited differences um, in reproduction, is a kind of series of successful mistakes. There's no planning, there's no foresight, but it worked. Ironically enough, I myself was first exposed to the power of natural selection um, in a genuine factory. I made the perhaps unwise decision, because every university in Britain turned me down um, one year, and then only Edinburgh accepted me the next year. Uh, Standards were low in those days. Um, I made the perhaps unwise decision, or in retrospect, I, I think it was a good idea. I left school and I went to work. I started training as an engineer or a fitter um, in a soap factory on Merseyside. Okay? And I went around the factory learning things. I did a lot of stripping of asbestos off of valves, and I'm still waiting for the possible effects of that. So far, so, so, far, so good. Um, but one of the things I spent, I spent a couple of months in what was called the detergent shed. 
And to make detergent, to make washing powder, the principle is simple, the practice is much more difficult, but what you do is you take a huge vat, not quite as big as this hall, but big, and you fill it with a boiling hot chemical liquid under pressure, and you force that liquid through a nozzle. And as it comes out of the nozzle, it bursts into two phases. It bursts into a vapor, which is taken away by fans and recirculated, and the powder, which is your famous washing powder. And in my day, the nozzles looked like this. They were about that long, made of stainless steel, heavy, um, rather pretty and beautiful things, expensive to make, um, and they were useless. They kept getting blocked. They made grains of different sizes. One nozzle would only work with one particular formulation of chemicals. They were really very, very primitive things. So what the factory owners did, and did it across the world, was to hire a series of intelligent designers, really intelligent designers, mathematicians, physicists, giant brains of that kind, to try and improve this. And they had very limited success because the physics of moving from a liquid to a solid plus a powder, a phase transition as it's called, is very hard to understand. Almost without realizing it, I think, at the time, the, uh, the, the engineers and the designers then moved on to classic Darwinian natural selection. What they did was to make 10 copies of that nozzle and mutate them, to change them slightly. At random, longer or shorter, a bigger or smaller hole, different angle of attack as the liquid went in, and so on. And they tested them against each other. And maybe one of them was marginally better, 1% better than what had gone before. So they took that one, allowed it to reproduce, made 10 copies of itself, um, changed it at random, and carried on the process. It inherited differences in the chances of reproduction or natural selection, and very quickly they saw a remarkable change. Here's a rather primitive model of what happened. Um, over the generations, they began to evolve, and I use that word, I use that word advisedly, they began to evolve through natural selection, a highly unlikely, almost impossible nozzle, which looked like that, and worked a hundred times better than what had gone before. And nobody designed that. There was no foresight. It happened by the simple Darwinian machine. So it works. And it works on inherited differences. Well, it works on humans too. I'll just give you one example of how it works on humans, that it does work on humans as much as on nozzles. Um, one of the odd things about the human race, two odd things about the human race, first of all, we're biologically very similar from place to place. At the DNA level, compared to chimpanzees, for example, we're remarkably homogeneous. But we're physically, we look pretty different from place to place, and needless to say, most of all, in terms of skin color. And the evolution of white skin is a classic of Darwinian natural selection. Really, it, it turns on, um, uh, that we all know that the people in the tropics have dark skin, people in northern parts tend to have lighter skin. And the question is why? Uh, it turns on a chemical called melanin, and everything we know about melanin is good. Having a black skin, having lots of melanin, in almost every way is a big, big plus. It protects against skin cancer, protects against aging of the skin, improves your eyesight, even improves your hearing. Um, everything, all those things are worse in people with white skin. So why this strong effect um, of whiteness as we moved away from Africa oh, somewhat less than 100,000 years ago? Well, it has to turn, as you probably know, on vitamin balance, on a particular vitamin called vitamin D. We, which is made in the skin if ultraviolet light from the sun can actually get through it. We know a lot about the genetics of this system now, and it's really a classic of what the power of modern genetics. The gene for much of the melanin variation from place to place um, was actually found in a fish, a zebra fish, which is a mutation called the golden zebra, um, which the melanin is taken away. Uh, people did some classic experiments of crossing these fish. They found the gene, sequenced the DNA, looked through the human genome, which you can do in a second with these 
make extraordinary programs which are freely available, these web, these uh, databases, found the gene in humans and discovered there was an almost complete shift between uh, different parts of the world. Let's just, yes, you can see that. Um, it's, let's, let's just look at uh, Africa and Europe. And this is one of the genes that controls skin color. Something like 99% of all sub-Saharan Africans have one amino acid in one part of this molecule, one building block, and something like 99% of native Europeans have got a different amino acid in the same place. It's actually the most strikingly structured gene that we know in the human genome. So it's a big, big effect. Um, something caused it, that something, as we'll see in a moment, was natural selection. There's a spin on the tail. Uh, look over to, the, to, to Asia and Japan. Now, people in Asia and Japan have rather light-colored skins. They've lost most of their melanin. But they have the African form of, what, of this gene. So what's going on? What's actually happened is that natural selection, which doesn't plan ahead, has picked up a different mutation in China and Japan, so that white skin has evolved, or light-colored skin, has evolved at least twice, perhaps more times. Um, so the actual tree of it looks like that. So whatever it was that changed us from black to white must have been pretty powerful because it happened twice, it might even happen more, and it happened quickly. It probably happened within, um, within 50,000 years or less. It's quite likely, in fact, that the first Britons, the first modern humans to live in Britain, were black, um, which is a startling thought, uh, which I recommend to the anti-racists among you. Okay? So what, did it, what was it due to? Well, as I hinted, it's almost certainly due to vitamin D balance. Um, if, you have a white, if you have a black skin, you cannot make vitamin D successfully in the, cell, in the sun. If you, have, um, if you have a black skin, you can't make enough vitamin D. If you have a white skin, you can. And an absence of vitamin D does all kinds of horrible things. It causes rickets, for example, uh, soft, bendy bones, because the bones can't be laid down. The calcium and the phosphate um, isn't metabolized properly. And were you to look in Glasgow's Necropolis Cemetery, particularly, also in Edinburgh, at children's bones from the 19th century and earlier, you would find a high proportion of them, particularly in Glasgow, um, would have rickets. That was because it was smoky, there was no sun, there was the window tax which closed up windows, people never went outside, and they got rickets, and they died in their thousands and their tens of thousands. People think that rickets is a is an ancient disease that's gone away. It's not. It's still the second commonest non-communicable disease of childhood in the world. All those children who died of rickets were fueled for natural selection because those with lighter skin could make, um, could make uh, vitamin D. Those with darker skin died of rickets, um, and those dark-skinned genes were replaced by light-skinned genes really quite quickly. Um, this, the, we now know that actually the vitamin D is actually much, much more important than we ever thought. It's actually absolutely central to all kinds of health problems in terms of muscles and bones and blood pressure, um, control of pathogens. It even, high le low levels of vitamin D mean that you actually um, uh, have difficulty in controlling the spread of cancer. Some people even say that the the rather poor health of the Scots compared to the English, particularly in the west of Scotland, may be due to a shortage of vitamin D simply because of the absence of sunshine. Um, I think that the, uh, the liquor that built this hall may have something to do with it. I don't know. Um, but certainly that's an interesting thought. And there's even, been, there's even been claims that the Scottish diet should be supplemented with vitamin D. Uh, which I don't think will go anywhere because vitamin D has dangers if you have too much of it. But it's an interesting thought. And the effect, as I say, is quite big. If you look at plasma and vitamin D levels in African-Americans, shown solid here, and in European-Americans, most African-Americans, even today, are short of vitamin D, and most European-Americans are, are um, 
I've got plenty of vitamin D. And there are spins on the story. So that's natural selection through climate in humans. There's a spin on the story I'll mention briefly. Um, there are, of course, some superhumans, particularly common here in Scotland and in Scandinavia, um, in, enormously admired by the rest of us. And these are people with this very rare and aberrant mutation. Um, this is uh, Boris Johnson, the mayor of London. Um, in characteristically alert pose. Um, and you can see that Boris is a blonde. Science has at last solved the mystery of the blonde. Okay? Where did blondes come from? What is the point of blondes, for God's sake? I've often wondered, um, not being one myself. All right. Well, it's actually the same story. If you look at the spread of farming um, across Europe, which began about 10,000 years ago, it didn't actually get to Western Europe uh, blondes, of course, are very, very geographically um, uh, limited. This is a map of blondes before people began to move, perhaps in about 1700. And you can see that in Scandinavia mainly, in Scotland, plenty of blondes and red hens in Ireland, uh, almost none in southern Europe. Before, when spread, farming began to spread with grains in the early days, um, and that caused great problems with health as it happens, um, it, you cannot grow grains, primitive grains, north of a line of somewhere that goes, roughly speaking, through Liverpool. And that's because grains of the primitive kind need a warm spring to germinate. And that means, in most places, that means a warm, sunny spring to germinate. And you can't grow them north of that line uh, across Liverpool through somewhere, like, um, through somewhere like, um, like Hamburg and across. So farmers stopped and didn't go any further than that for a long time. There's one exception to that statement, and that's in Northwest Europe, in Scandinavia and in Britain. Because here we can grow grains because we have a warm spring because of the Gulf Stream. So we have warmth brought in, even though we have no sun in the springtime. So that when farming arrived, people could move to this very unhealthy diet, almost absent in vitamin D, um, even though they never saw the sun. So any mutation which further which further uh, lightened the skin, the famous blonde, was favored. And that's why we have blondes and redheads in northwest Scotland, in Ireland, and in Scandinavia. And it happened quite recently. This is a very crappy slide, I'm afraid. But it shows that farming got to Scotland probably about 6,000 years ago. It got to Scandinavia, um, parts of Scandinavia, less than 1,000 years ago. So all this happened very, very quickly. So natural selection can work on humans. And if I wanted to, and I don't, I'm sure you don't want either, I could give you many, many more examples of that happening. So you could speculate about what's going to happen to natural selection by ask, asking about are we going to control malaria, are we going to put vitamin D in the food, um, but we don't need to do any of that because we can make some very precise statements about what's going to happen to natural selection, not with um, biological information, but with demographic information, information about numbers. And it's interesting indeed that Darwin himself um, was drawn to the idea of natural selection by Thomas Malthus's book on population, populations growing. And it was those numbers that made Darwin think about natural selection, um, that population went up, he thought, uh, ge uh, geometrically, and resources only arithmetically. Well, we have figures on human survival too. I start my first year lectures in UCL, which I won't do until next week, um, by asking, well, actually, I, I always start them in the same pathetic joke. I say, I'm a geneticist, and my job is to make sex boring. And the students look blankly at me, but 25 lectures later, by God, they agree. Um, but then I, then I say, okay, look to the person to your left and the person to your right. And two, and this is only, a, for those geneticists in the audience, this is only a partly accurate statement. I say, two out of every three of you will die for reasons connected to the genes you carry. 
of cancer, of heart disease, of diabetes, all of which have got a strong genetic component. So they look a bit blank at that. But I say, don't worry, if I'd been giving this lecture in, in Shakespeare's time, two out of every three of you would be dead already. And that's actually true. And here are the figures for life and death um, of children in England and Scotland. The figures are, are probably more or less identical. Um, you can see in roughly speaking Shakespeare's time, a third of all British children died before they were 21. In Darwin's time, 1809, uh, 1809 was his birthplace, but something rather less uh, than half died before they were 21. In 2001, 99% of all babies who last for the first month um, will last until they're 21. Now, because natural selection turns on differences, particularly differences among young people, um, if there are no differences, there's no natural selection. Okay? So you don't have to go through lots of examples and hand-waving, you just look at these figures. There are no differences, there's no natural selection. It's as simple as that. So that part of natural selection has stopped, and I'm pretty confident of that statement. Maybe just for the time being, and certainly only in the developed world, it isn't true in Africa, but it stopped. Okay? However, there's a spin on the story, as Darwin himself, the great god Darwin, uh, realized, that natural selection is like the driving test. It's a two-part exam. You've got to pass both papers. The first one's easy. By definition, we've all passed it because we're all still alive. At least I hope we're all still alive. Um, uh, and, it's, you know, you, you stay alive. And basically, we stay alive. Second part is the practical exam. And that's much more difficult. You've got to find a mate, have sex, and have children. Okay? And from evolution's point of view, I'm sad to report, I might just as well be dead because I have no children. So you need to, un to understand the power of natural selection, the action of natural selection. You need also to ask how much variation, how much difference is there in the number of children that people have. And as Darwin realized, and it's obvious indeed, there is much, much more chance of variation in sexual success among males than among females because males are limited only by the number of females they can persuade or force to mate with them. Females are limited by the simple facts of biology of the number of children they can have and childcare and that kind of stuff. And there's plenty of, ev there's plenty of evidence of you know, people in the old days who had many, many children, um, a, but that's, that's, uh, and that even happens quite recently. Here's a picture of a family on holiday in Sweden. You probably recognize the chap, he's in the 60s, you probably recognize the chap with a red circle around his head, that's Osama bin Laden, okay? Everybody in that photograph is either his brother, his sister, his half-brother, or his half-sister. And Osama bin Laden's father, Mohammed bin Laden, had um, 22 wives and 53 children. The last time that Osama was allowed, allowed people to count his family, he had five wives and 22 children. Well, if somebody has 22 wives, there's 21 other blokes out there who are smiting their brows or doing something um, because they're not getting mates, okay? So there's a massive variation in male mating success. Some people are having huge numbers of children, men more, than, more variation in men than in women. Others are not, and if there's any genetic basis to that, then that's an agent of natural selection. That was Darwin's argument for the peacock's tail of sexual selection. And that leaves its mark in many ways. For example, we can work out how many males have mated in the past by looking at the patterns of Y chromosome variation, the, the male chromosome in uh, different populations. All of us, or men, and half the people or so in this room have got a Y chromosome. Um, the other half females don't. And the Y chromosome has quite a lot of variation on it. 
And there's a whole industry now, um, of which I played a small part, of going out and looking at patterns, the geography of Y chromosomes across the, the world. And what you find, generally speaking, that if we were to take a bunch of Scots or Brits, as I insist on saying, split, um, um, you would find that most of us in this room, most of the men in this room, had really pretty different Y chromosomes from everybody else. It's quite a variable chromosome, and there's lots and lots of different kinds, none of which gets particularly common in most populations. However, there are exceptions to that. Here's a map of Y chromosome variation in Ireland. And there is a focus of one particular Y chromosome in Donegal and thereabouts, where up to 20% of men have an Y chromosome identical to other men, in, or almost so, uh, to other men in the same population. They all belong to a group of families with surnames, and I'll come back to the surnames in a moment, with surnames that they believe to descend from the high kings of Ireland. The people who ruled the warlords, the warlords, the Osama bin Ladens of ancient Irish history, which they certainly were, who ruled for hundreds of years. There's one called Neil of the Nine Hostages, who lived in the sixth century, who's recorded as having had 20 wives and many children, and his sons did just the same thing. As a result, many other men had no children at all, and that Y chromosome still persists um, a thousand years and more later. So the effect is very real. So to answer our question about the future of natural selection, we need to know about the patterns of reproduction too. And it's very clear that they have changed in many ways. Here's, uh, there is no longer, almost anywhere in the world, is there anywhere where men have 53 wives and 122 children. Some men might have eight or ten children, possibly even twenty, but most men have zero, one, two, or three children, women ditto. So that's collapsed too, and you can see that in many ways. Here's fertility in Europe from 1882 to 2000, in West Europe, Eastern Europe, and in Russia. Uh, don't, we, know, we don't need to look at the details. Fertility levels have gone down, largely because many more children survive, but the interesting thing is that the variation in fertility from place to place and from family to family has also collapsed. And you can put those two figures on variation in, in, in fertility and variation in mortality together to get a statistic called the opportunity for natural selection. And in the last 200 years in Europe, the opportunity for natural selection, the differences have lost their power by nine-tenths. So natural selection is finished. Forget it. It's over, at least for now. Um, so let me turn finally to the, um, to the last, uh, to the last uh, part of the Darwinian argument. The argument about random change particularly in small populations. And Darwin, the great god Darwin, who left the University of Edinburgh, of course, after a year, um, a great mistake, I always thought, um, he was a bloody smart cookie. He immediately realized that there was something special about populations on islands. He noticed, of course, as we all know, that on the Galapagos, the birds, the plants, and so on, and the tortoises were different from those on the mainland. Um, on the Cape Verde Islands, which are the first islands he went to, it was just the same. They were African birds and the like, but they were different from those on the mainland. Why was that? Well, if you read The Origin, or even, even better, you read my rewrite of The Origin, it's called Almost Like a Whale, still available in all good bookshops. Um, Darwin admits that a lot of that happened in accident. Just by accident, a few individuals were blown across the sea. They carried, as we would say in modern parlance, a small sample of genes, and so things changed at random in small populations. And that effect is big. And the effect in humans was, in fact, first discovered, rather surprisingly maybe, by Francis Galton. And Galton, as I say, was a, was a clever guy. Um, he, had the ha he was also a rich guy, as was Darwin. And Galton had the habit of going on walking holidays in the 
middle of the, of the 19th century in the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland, which in those days was remote and isolated and poor and had scarcely changed in several hundred years. And he went twice, and um, he went walking from village to village, and he noticed something very odd. And prepare yourself for a crushingly bad joke. He was interested in surnames. And there is a whole science of surname genetics. Surnames are inherited like Y chromosomes, generally speaking. So you can do a lot with a telephone directory. and It doesn't cost very much. It was, it was founded by Galton. Galton turned up in his first village. And he found to his surprise that everybody, in effect, in the village had the surname Spaghetti. OK, weak joke, I told you. All right. So he noted that with curiosity, went over the hill to the next village. Everybody had the same surname, but it was Pasta. Next village over the, over the hill, they're all called Cannelloni. And Galton thought, now this is interesting, there must be some big advantage to being called spaghetti in village one and so on. But being a smart cookie, it didn't take him a minute to work out what was going on. If these villages are small, let's say with 10 families in them, 10 surnames when they were founded, any time a man has no sons, his name will disappear. He might have no children, he might have only daughters, his name will disappear, the other nine will become more common. And in time, purely at random, one name will take over. And that's random genetic change, that's genetic drift in small populations. And the effect is powerful. We're used to thinking of ourselves as an enormously abundant species, but we're not. If you look at where we, in terms of the number, what the numbers of humans ought to be, given our body size in relation to other primates, the real number, the natural number um, of, the of the human population is about one ten thousandth of what the population is nowadays. The natural um, pre-civilization, if you can call it that number, of humans is about the population of Glasgow. Whether the world would be better if it was filled by the population of Glasgow, I do not know. Um, but that's clearly the case. And for most of human history, 99% of human history, we were effectively an endangered species living in small groups that never encountered each other. Everyone in this room saw more people on their way to this lecture than the average human being saw in his or her lifetime when we were hunter-gatherers. So everything has changed. Historically, we were rare. And historically, random accident, as a result, played a large part. You can see that to an extent um, nowadays um, if you look at population movement. This is a slightly, comp slightly complex diagram here. Let's look at the purple, um, the purple um, uh, uh, bars here. What this is, the number, this is the amount of genetic variation in various populations. In Africa, Biaka uh, and Mbuti, African populations, and then in European and Middle Eastern populations, the Druze, Danes, Chinese, Japanese, we're basically following the track as humans went across the world, okay, until finally we got to the southern tip of South America, not very long ago, about 15,000 a bit less years ago. And you can see the amount of genetic variation goes down absolutely linearly. And if you draw a map of the amount of human variation in relation to distance from Addis Ababa, it's amazing. It's quite, it's statistics, it's not biology, it's physics, it's not biology, it kind of fits. And that is because it is physics, it's mathematics. We went through bottleneck after bottleneck after bottleneck in small populations and lost variation. So the effect was big. And the effect in some places still is big. Let me illustrate its power. Um, Okay, uh, let me just think about this. 
Got that out, there we go. Okay, um, let me illustrate its power. Here's a, um, here's a picture of a young girl I took about 15 years ago in Finland. And uh, I'm sorry to say that this young lady is certainly dead now because she had a, a rare genetic disease, variant late infantile neurolipofuscoidosis. Uh, it's not going to be in the exam, um, uh, which you need two copies of the gene to show the effect. It's like cystic fibrosis and all these things. This is Finland. Finland is an amazing place genetically. It has 33 genetic diseases known nowhere else in the world and a huge human genetics community which has done a vast amount of research on them, partly because Finland also has extraordinarily good pedigree records. And for much of history, Finland consisted of a few islands of people surrounded by a sea of trees. And if you live on islands, you have no choice but to marry from within the small group which is available to you, which generally speaking means that you marry your relatives. And this uh, uh, disease is common in only one, it's not common, but it's found in only one part of Finland and everybody who's got the disease can be put onto that pedigree. Um, the young girl is the round black blob at the bottom there, black means affected, um, um, empty means probably not affected, and we can trace her mother and her father who are shown as a, a heavy circle on a heavy square, we can trace them back actually to a shared ancestor who lived in the 17th century. And in fact every case in the whole of Finland, apart from one, which I also show in A, can be traced back to that guy. So what happened was he was perfectly healthy, he had one copy of the gene, but because the population was small, people married their relatives, they became inbred, as we said, and finally the gene began to show its effects. And the effect is amazingly powerful. There's a very recent piece of work, which let me talk you through, it's quite complicated, but it's interesting because it's Scottish. All right, <clears throat> we talk about surnames. What are surnames? Surnames are lengths of letters which are held together and passed down the generation. Jones, my wife's name is, her surname is Percy. If we had any kids, they'd be called Jones. Or no, my wife would probably be called Percy, but be as it may. Um, they, they, we don't scramble the surnames together, okay? Now, in general, genetics does scramble stuff together, but on a very short um, lengths of DNA, it doesn't. We don't get this recombination, as it's called, um, within the DNA over very short lengths. So that if you look at populations which have got lots and lots of long lengths of identical DNA in them, they probably are very, very inbred because they're, be because they're small populations and there hasn't been the random exchange of genes among unrelated people. And what we've got here is a kind of complicated thing. And I'll just look at the right-hand thing that says greater than 10, all right? What that is, the proportion of the population in it, these different places that have lengths of DNA, genetic surnames, more than 10,000 DNA letters long. If you look at the yellow, let's just take the, let's just take the Scottish ones. Okay, let's take the, or let's talk, actually there are no tens in mainland Scotland. Let's take the Scottish, five to 9.9. The Scottish ones are shown uh, dark brown, and um, there's, there's quite a few, there's, uh, where the hell are we, yes. There's quite a few, half the population has a length of DNA, which are that long. But then let's go to Orkney, uh, endogamous, that's the purple one, and you'll see there are fewer of them. And that's true at all lengths, okay? Um, and that's true in Orkney in general. If you look at Orcadian DNA, there is much, much more evidence of inbreeding and small population size up on the Orkneys compared to Scotland as a whole. Scotland as a whole is quite outbred, um, but the Orkneys are inbred because they've been isolated in small populations, and they do indeed have certain genetic diseases which are more common there than elsewhere. So that evolution can take place quite rapidly in small populations. So what's going to happen to population size? It's going to, it has increased. Um, evolution, as, as biologists often say, um, evolution is made in bed. 
evolution turns on mating patterns. And mating patterns have changed. And they've changed in a very, very obvious way. Uh, for example, if you go to London, which is now arguably the most racially mixed population in the world, um, then you're in a situation where actually skin color, Afro-Caribbean versus white, makes very little difference to who you mate with and marry. Um, in New York, for example, or in the United States rather than New York, um, the chances of a black woman um, marrying uh, a white man uh, are 300 times less than a black woman marrying a black man. In Britain, in London, the figure is three times less. So that the skin color variation is having very little effect. Actually, the best uh, predictor of who you will mate, mate or marry um, is education level. Thanks. I guess most people who have been to university know that to be true. Okay. So that these choice mechanisms are breaking up, but you can measure them without reference to skin color. Ask yourself the following question. How far apart were you born and your wife or partner born compared to the distance apart that your mother and father were born, your mother's mother and your mother's father were born, and so on back into history? And I can almost guarantee, it's not always true, I, I can almost guarantee that in every case, that figure, that marital distance, has got much greater. My case is rather extreme. My wife and I uh, were born 3,000 miles apart because she was born in Manhattan in New York. I, my parents were born three miles apart in West Wales. And as a student once pointed out, it shows. Um, but uh, uh, the effect is big. Uh, arguably the most uh, important event in the history of human evolution was the invention of the bicycle. Okay? No longer did you have to marry the boy or the girl next door. You can get on your bicycle or your train or your 747 to a large, larger pool of people and spread your genes much, much more widely. So that too has actually made the case that indeed um, things are changing. You can see it with my own family name. Here, uh, this is going back to Galton and his, uh, and Galton and his surnames. Uh, now we have maps of British surnames. This is a map of Jones in, in 1881. And you don't appear on the map until the frequency of the surname uh, gets above 2%. So there are no Joneses in England, or hardly any. Um, in West Wales, where I come from, my village was, even when I was born in the 1940s, was more than half Joneses. Okay? There has been enormous progress. We've been allowed out beyond the electric fence. And there are now Joneses all over the Midlands. We've got to London. And as I remember well, I even met a couple of Joneses in Edinburgh. So to summarize then, all three parts of the Darwinian machine, mutation, natural selection, and genetic drift, have lost their power. So if you're, if you're worried about um, where, what utopia is going to be like, you shouldn't be worrying about it because you're living in it now. Thank you. very much Steve for a really exciting and interesting talk. Um, we're going to now take some questions for maybe 20 minutes or something like that. Um, if, if you want 20 minutes worth of questions. Now when you want to ask a question please wait for somebody to come running to you with a microphone because otherwise in this hall it's really difficult to hear. So who would like to ask the first question? Is it going to be in the exam? It's always the first question. Okay. It's not my god, they're taking me twos. Take it 
think I mean two is an English word. Um, you have basically demonstrated that evolution-wise, we are at the beginning of. Sorry, I can't hear. Can you speak? Um, it, I mean, I can hear the noise, but it's, uh, it's distorted. Okay. <clears throat> so you have demonstrated that we are now evolution-wise at the beginning of a new era. But would you expect that new patterns would emerge, like uh, selection for inability to use or immunity to contraception? Yes, that's certainly true. I mean, that's a, that's a very Galtonian argument, actually. Um, one of the, I mean, I don't want to get it too much into the technology of it, but one of the things which try is many much great evolutionists are a quarrelsome lot. Okay, they spend their time, spend their time arguing, splitting hairs about minutiae to do with snails and fruit flies, and indeed humans. And one of the, I don't, don't want to go into the depths of it, but one of the arguments which has been for years and years, in fact it was started out by a guy called Wynne Edwards in Aberdeen in the 1950s, is the argument of group selection. That actually, it doesn't matter what individuals do um, to evolution, what happens is which groups succeed, okay? and uh, to the f genetic future of a particular species. And that was greatly poo-pooed. But actually, it's absolutely right. And you can see that in humans, and you can see it happening in the evolutionary sense to humans today, against, in fact, my own case. Let's, if we were to look at the proportion, uh, the, let's go back to the skin color genes. If we were to go back to 1492, and ask what are the proportions of white and black genes, roughly speaking, in the world, I don't know what the answer would be. My guess would be that the world frequency of, of light-colored European genes would be something of the order of 10% of the total, okay? <coughs> if we were to go back to uh, 1892, when Europeans had filled the Americas, Australia, present in large numbers in Africa, uh, the incidence of, um, of what light-colored genes across the world would have gone certainly up, perhaps to 20 or 30 percent, maybe more. And that's, in the global sense, that's evolution, that's group selection. Nothing to do with the fact that it's good, it's sunlight or something like that. It's simply that one group is, is, is uh, expanding itself more rapidly than another. And that's happening today in a, quite a subtle way. I happened to read in a paper about it the other day. It, it's clearly the case that the world population, the sexual behavior of the world population is undergoing a, a huge revolution. It's called the, demo, I'm sure many of you know it, it's called the demographic transition. You go from high death rates, high birth rates and high death rates to low birth rates and low death rates. And the West went through that in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, uh, uh, China went through it with an astonishing speed in the last 20 years, partly because of uh, government coercion, the one-child policy. Uh, um, India is going through it at great speed, far, far quicker than anybody imagined. Africa has not gone into it, but in some senses that doesn't matter to be rather cruel, because what that means is a high birth rate, but a high death rate because of HIV and the like. But the one place that's been aberrant and has gone into it but hasn't come out is the Middle East. And the Middle East has got very high birth rates. The highest completed family size in the world are, uh, are Palestinian Arabs, okay? Um, mean family size for women, I think, is 11. That's the mean. That's huge. Okay, uh, but they haven't. And the, but they haven't come out of. They have. They've got. They've gone into high survival rates. Um, they, they've gone into high. What am I talking? Getting tangled here. Uh, they've got high birth rates, but they don't have. They haven't gone. They've. they've 
they got survival right first, medical care in the Middle East is good, but they continued their high birth rates. So if you look at the global picture, the one group in the world which is massively expanding is the Middle East. And if you go over to the Middle East, as I sometimes do, it's obvious, immediately obvious, you go to a place like Syria or Iran, um, uh, I can't remember the exact figures, but more than half the population is under 25. Now that is, has all kinds of interesting political implications, but it's an evolutionary phenomenon that this group's genes, which are distinct to a degree, are going to get much, much more common. And so in that sense, I suppose my case is false, but don't tell anybody that I said so. Hello? That's ah, it. Wonderful, thank you. Um, so, uh, at one point you say that uh, there are less old um, fathers, so there's less mutation. But then, at another point, you emphasize the fact that the human population is, is massive and more, much, much bigger than it should be. Sorry, I didn't point, pick, pick up the last sentence. Uh, you, 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 first, you emphasize that, that yeah. there are less old fathers, so less yeah. mutations. But then you talk about the large human population size. Um, so surely a, a huge human population size would have innumerably, innumerable mutations in it, and that would overtake the. That would be a much more important factor in giving mutations yeah. than, you know, young, yeah, that, young I mean, that's, and old that's fathers. That's a good point. Which again, that's much talked about in evolutionary biology. What is the in evolutionary biology? What is the relationship between population size and and uh, and, and evolutionary progress? It's, I'm not going for hours about it, but I won't. It's an interesting question. I don't think we know the answer in humans, um, but it's clearly the case that if you've got enormously abundant animal populations, uh, then you're much more likely to get a response, a rapid response, to a sudden dose of natural selection. The classic example of that, and actually that effect was worked out here in Edinburgh, the Hill-Robertson effect, um, the, cl the, um, the, the, the classic example of that is, is, is houseflies. Okay. Houseflies, I haven't counted the world's houseflies recently, but there are lots and lots of them. Um, there are millions or billions of them. Uh, they were, in the 1950s, they were sprayed with DDT, and that worked fine for a couple of years. And then, inevitably, there was a mutation which spread, so DDT no longer works. If you look at the mutation in the world's houseflies, in Australia, South Africa, South America, it turns out that every single one of them has got the same DDT mutation, same change in the same gene, and also a great length of DNA unchanged on either side of that gene. Um, so what that tells you is that that mutation only happened once. And, what, because, and because there are so many fruit flies, it was bound to happen. The other classic example of that is HIV. HIV is actually not very infective. It's hard to get AIDS. You don't want to get it, but uh, once you've got it, you've got it. Once you've got HIV, you're done for because all possible mutations in the HIV genome will happen within inside yourself, simply because there are so many particles. They're going to happen. So there will be resistance to all possible drugs in the HIV genome, which is exactly what's happening. So population size is really, really important. Quite where we stand in its effect in humans, I don't know. Um, I'm don't, not sure that anybody else does too, because it turns on a historical thing called the effective population size. And the effective population size is still small because we were rare for so long. But it's an interesting question. Um, I might dig around and see if anybody's um, uh, looked further into it. A couple over there. man in a Liberal Democrat shirt. 
Uh, thank you for a remarkable talk. Um, I have two questions. Uh, the first is, which page of the textbook should I read for the exam? <laughs> well, it depends which textbook. Um, uh, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, we always tell kids the exam questions anyway nowadays, so they can read the pages they need. Uh, I said, um, no, I don't know the answer to that, I'm afraid. And what's so the second, what's the the second, second question? one? Um, by natural selection, we have actually got rid of genetic material, but whereas now we're, this process is not happening, so we're keeping more genetic material alive, could that be exploited to advantage in the future? Well, most people, I mean, the question is, has natural selection, the, the relaxation of natural selection, has it allowed genes to survive, which otherwise would have died out? I think that's clearly true. It's got nothing to do with med medical advance, or very little to do with medical advance. It's got everything to do with sewage works, clean water, that kind of stuff. The reason all those kids died long ago uh, was in London was things like cholera. And there are certainly genes that give resistance to cholera, and many of those who died did not carry those genes. Now there's no cholera, so those bad genes in inverted commas that make you susceptible to cholera um, are now being passed on. Okay? So that's certainly true. And that was one of, one of Galton's arguments, that you know, by being kind to people, allowing them to survive, you were polluting the genetic future. I always use what I think of as the spectacles argument. I wear glasses, okay, um, and if I take, life becomes even more of a blur if I take them off. Um, in the days before glasses, if I was a hunter-gatherer, I would starve to death or be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, because I'd see this large animal coming towards me and I'd stroke it and say, nice tiger, and then it would bite my head off, all right? So, um, so there was strong natural selection against people with defective eyesight, and there certainly are certainly has a genetic basis to defective eyesight. But, and that stopped when spectacles were invented. But as long as we've got spectacles, it doesn't matter. So I think the case is that as long as we've got medical care, clean water and that kind of thing, it doesn't matter. And Galton's argument was, you know, we should go back to being living, you know, short lives that are short, British and nasty. Um, life was hell in Britain in hunter-gatherer days, probably, and in early farmer days. Life is much, much better now. What would you prefer, to live in comfort in Morningside or to be struggling to pull a crop off the starving fields of East Lothian? I think I know, I think I know the answer to that. Um, about using this data in these genes in the future, I don't really know. There is one observation which is really very odd, which has to do with, um, with HIV AIDS, which is a, a whole big story in its own right. There are a number of genes that protect against HIV, some of which are in Africa, and it's arguable that they've evolved to protect against HIV because HIV has been in Africa for a long time. But something like one person in six in this room has got a copy of a variant in a gene called CCR5, a deletion, a little bit missing, which if you've got one of even better two copies of that and you're unfortunate enough to become infected with HIV, then you are much more likely to survive than somebody who has no copies of it. Now that's really, really weird because we know that HIV the virus did not get to the outside Africa until 1971. And there's no way in hell that it's going to spread, this gene is going to spread at that time. But if you look at the map of where this gene is common, it's common in North Germany, it's common in Denmark, it's commoner in Scotland than it is in England. Um, it is said, it is said that it overlaps the area of, I think, high cholera attacks. No, high, the black, black death, uh, histories of high levels of black death. So it may have been a gene that evolved to protect against the Black Death, which is an incidental, is now able to protect against a totally different disease, which is HIV. 
So maybe in some ways, by retaining all this variation in a large population, allowing people to survive, maybe we are having an insurance um, uh, policy for the future, but you should come back and ask me in 500 years. Um, given that human populations are now exercising much more freedom of choice over fertility, is there likely to be a sense in which natural selection will favor the desire to have children rather than just the desire to have sex? That may well be true. Um, and that's, I'm, I'm, I kind of made that point in a rather confused way when I talked about the Middle East, where there's a desire to have children. It's interesting, if you... If you um, if you go around the world and you, uh, and you interview people, how many children do you want? How many children would you like to have when you get old? That's the question. Almost everywhere, apart from the Middle East, the answer is two. Okay? And it's quite striking, actually. It's a very narrow distribution. I've actually I've got a slide of it. There it is. Yay! Look at that. <laughs> Thank you for that question. Um, all right. Um, that's the figure for Europe. But the same is true in India. The same is true in China, um, except for the Middle East. So I think in the end, there will be some people who choose to have no children, but there, is, there seems to be a strong desire to have two children, which is, of course, the number of children that people have had almost exactly since humans evolved. They had, they had many more, but most of them died. But for 99% of human history, people had two surviving children, and people still, roughly speaking, have two and a bit surviving children. Um, I don't think that desire not to reproduce, although it's certainly, it's certainly appearing, there's no question of that, I don't think the effect will have much, will have much of an effect yet, but it may do in the future. I guess confused by your talk, you, you began by saying the answer is yes, so you can leave, and finished yeah. by saying the answer is no, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, I mean, when, when asked, will there be selection for new behaviours like contraception or wanting to have children, you said yes. Um, is there an enormous well of mutations in our 8 billion population, vastly bigger than ever before? The answer is yes. And uh, it, are there large-scale gene frequency changes for, for genes for diabetes and all the thousands, tens of thousands of other lethal and semi-lethal mutations that are now increasing in frequency as, as, as they've never seen? A, they're the ones that are in utopia. So I, I just can't see how the answer can remotely be... Uh, no, I'm, yes, I'm it's not, stopped. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with you. I mean, first of all, when you, when you talk about things like diabetes, okay, the reason for the great increase in diabetes is not a great increase in diabetes genes, if such a thing exists, which probably do, actually, uh, but a great increase uh, in obesity and in overeating. So the genes are just manifesting their effects in a way which they had not done before. So the genes themselves have not changed frequency. I did put the sort of health warning on at the beginning, which I, I accept, which is if you're, talking, if you're asking, are gene frequencies changing, let's just talk about Britain, in the British population, the answer is obviously yes. Perhaps less obvious in this audience than in a London audience, which will have kids of Asian, of African, of, uh, of uh, South American ancestry in them, and there will be more or less random mating among that group. Now, that's a gene frequency change, and I'm very happy to put my hands up and say, that's happening. But if you talk about evolution in the sense that most people believe it, in the utopian or the dystopian sense, that the human race is going to alter its, um, its, uh, its behavior, its, its appearance, everything that makes us human uh, in the way that it has done very rapidly over the last few hundred thousand years, I'm still pretty confident the answer is no.
Um, so I've just got a very few, a very few thank yous to say. Um, first and foremost, I'd like to thank Steve um, for taking time out of a very hectic schedule to give us this talk this evening, which was very enjoyable. Um, as Mary mentioned, um, this, this lecture is not just an enlightenment lecture, it's actually also a research staff development event. Um, and the university and the research funding bodies have put a lot of effort into trying to develop research staff um, and particularly skills to do with communication and media. And so events like this give us the opportunity to hear world-class communicators talk to us. Um, and that's a very important aspect of being a scientist in the current era. Um, it's worth pointing out the University of Edinburgh is very good at this and uh, the university has been nominated this year for the fourth year running for a Times Higher Education Award in this area. Um, I would like to thank some of the people involved in organising this, so um, Vice Principal Mary Bounds, Deep Theatre Sylvia Williams, Jane Halley and Colin Sharp for their help in supporting and organising the event and also to Sheila Thompson and Natalie Poyser who are responsible for the research developer programme at the university. So it remains for me to ask you all to show your appreciation once again to Steve uh, for his lecture this evening. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.